Today we're going to be talking about the subject of mental health. Now, before we do begin, I just wanted to preface this podcast with a bit of a cautionary note, um, just to say that some of the subjects that we might be um, talking about in this podcast um, may be a little bit sensitive to the ear. Um, If that is the case, um, please feel free to let me know. Um, Maybe it was a little bit too sensitive and maybe I can learn um, from discussing these types of things. Um, or let someone who loves you or that you love know that um, you're not feeling okay. Um, And most of all, I do hope that you reach out to me um, and let me know um, how you felt during this podcast. Um, Nothing would give me greater grief if through my journey of explaining the inside voice or trying to understand our inside voice that I was contributing to um, potentially something that was making you feel unwell. Um, So with that in mind, I do hope that you listen to this podcast um, uh, with sensitive ears and compassion and empathy um, to other people who may be experiencing something similar Um, and feel free to reach out to me if you need anything. Um, And I hope that you enjoy this podcast um, as much as I enjoyed making it. Um, So, yeah, thank you and have a beautiful day. Think of the brain as a really complex editing machine. At its most optimum state, it seeps through thousands of stray, dramatic, disconcerting and horrifying thoughts and ends up with those that are actually useful and need to be actively entertained for us to live our lives efficiently. What this means is, without knowing who you are, I can rush to the conclusion that you have thoughts on the daily that are punitive and appalling that tell us repeatedly how disgraceful and unworthy we are. A healthy mind discerns between these unruly thoughts and those that are productive. Let's say you're in an interview for a new job or on a date with someone beautiful. A healthy mind will not derail our sense of confidence and replace it with an overwhelming sense of despondency and unworthiness. What I'm trying to allude to here is that These thoughts are normal, but a healthy mind doesn't force us to listen to that inside voice that insists on our incapabilities. Let's go one step further with the working of a healthy mind. A healthy mind has a firm grip on the faucet of fear. What that means is it knows that there are an endless amount of things that could go wrong in this world and an endless amount of things to worry about. Your blood vessels might clot. You could be involved in a head-on collision with a car. The plane's turbines might fail and send you into a cinematic stall like that in the film Sully. But regardless of the high-definition discourse that occurs in your mind, a healthy mind will trump this commentary with thoughts of reason and logic. It has a good distinction between what could happen and what in fact is likely to happen. Lastly, a healthy mind knows how to securely shut the heavy doors of our sometimes perverted minds. 
Now, I read an article by Alan DeBottom explaining the role of thoughts in our everyday, day-to-day lives and how not all of the thoughts belong to all moments. He spoke about a couple of examples that I found were really, really funny. He said, while talking to your grandma, the mind prevents the emergence of images of last night's erotic fantasies. While looking after a child, it can repress its more cynical insights. All of these nasty thoughts about jumping on a train line or harming someone's self with a sharp knife can remain brief, peculiar flashes rather than the repetitive fixations. A healthy mind has mastered the techniques of censorship is what Alan was trying to say. So by outlining some of the things that a healthy mind does, It shows me how in ill health, our minds can go awry. We should see mental ailments as common as physical ailments. You know, even in the most meaningful and fulfilled lives and conversations with seemingly enlightened people, there lies a human being whose thoughts are unexplainable, unpredictable, and governed by either an efficient sieve or one with marked holes in it. I find it really interesting to show people through this information that we shouldn't be reluctant to seek help in the instance that we feel out of control in our minds. The same way that if we had a fever or new bumps and bruises on our bodies. Health as a concept, whether it be mental or physical, is worthy of attention, sympathy and love from others. Now, I want to talk about how this idea of seeking help actually plays out in our society. I want to offer a perspective of the progression of mental illness from its early stages and the role of stigma as a well-known obstacle uh, to seeking professional help. For a long time, it might seem like you're doing okay. You wake up every morning, You lock Pandora's box with the reply of good thanks to well-wishers, and we smile over lunch. You aren't feeling proverbially enlightened, but you also have no way of understanding what to expect on a day-to-day basis. You know, how do you feel enlightened? How do you feel content? What brings us peace of mind? There's also little way of knowing how difficult things might be for other people. And we often lack perspective to the natural ebbs and flows that govern our lives. We feel pretty balanced if we're asked, but we constantly compare ourselves to others. There's a strong chance you also tell yourself to stop being so self-indulgent in comparisons to other people who might not have it as good as you. And you probably tell yourself as well to just try harder in an effort to will out the negativity and adversity that you're experiencing. It also doesn't help that as humans we're prone to amnesia and often forget all of the pick-me-ups that we read time and time and again only to find more quotes that are going to be lost in the dust. You know, how many times have you looked online for, or looked through Instagram and you see an awesome quote, you write it down, but then you forget it for the next time that you actually need it. We're probably also world experts in not feeling sorry for ourselves as well. Years might go by, 
Um, it's not really uncommon to read statistics in diagnostic journals about how serious metal, um, mental conditions actually remain undiagnosed for upwards of half a lifetime to, you know, a full lifetime. We start to realize the truth of what we mistake as normal human turmoil as actually daily paralyzing anxiety, melancholy, self-loathing thoughts, and an overwhelming sense of despondency. And all too often the stigma of seeking help from a practitioner who I might just say, their professional name contains remnants of the word psycho, scares us and convinces us that their role is only reserved for the truly mentally unstable. You know, like Jack Napier from the Oscar award-winning film, The Joker. You can see how we've now convinced ourselves that we're normal, regardless of all of the red flags that we've experienced thus far. Until one day, finally, something triggers a collapse. It might be a crisis at work, a reversal in our career plans, or a mistake we've made over a task. It might be a romantic failure, someone leaving us, or a realization that we're profoundly unhappy with a partner we had thought might be in our long-term future. Alternatively, we feel mysteriously exhausted and sad, to the extent that we can't face anything anymore. Even a smile over a family meal, or a thought of a conversation with a friend or we're struck by unmanageable anxiety around everyday challenges, like addressing our colleagues or going into a shop. We're swamped by a sense of doom and imminent catastrophe. We, we cry uncontrollably as well. Now, a lot of this philosophy comes from one of my favorite philosophers, um, Alan de Bottom, and he writes these amazing essays um, about these topics and, you know, even owns part of the essays that come from the School of Life. Um, and, you know, all of these essays that he writes are extremely eye-opening. Um, they're eye-opening because they just hit home. They're extremely and intensely relatable. Um, and, you know, it's very evident that when these things are happening, you know, when we're struck by unmanageable anxiety around everyday challenges, you know, or, you know, something has triggered you to just fall into a, you know, collapse, um, we're experiencing a mental health crisis. We've felt grief before, whether it be a loss of a family member, someone leaving us, or the familiar feeling of failure. But what we haven't experienced is grief with no cause. There's nothing shameful about our condition, we've simply just fallen ill, as so many humans before us and around us have. We've just fallen ill, only the paradox here is that we've fallen ill in the very place that governs our reasons to live. The place that gives us hope, sanity and will to carry on. Then there's the embarrassment that we feel that compounds our sickness and the stigmas in our workplaces that make us feel weak and unfit. But the day that you admit that you no longer have a clue how to cope with it, 
You know, the day that you pull out the white flag is the day that you start your recovery. Now, if only the whole world could unsee the gray line that separates mental and physical health. You know, what a utopia that would be. After all, a broken leg is met with compassion, sympathy, and well wishes in the workplace. Mental health is quite the opposite. Distance, apathy, and stigma. Now, if I echoed the well-known anti-inflammatory that we've all taken for aches and pains and rolled ankles, ibuprofen, or nurofen as most of us know it, you wouldn't think twice. You'd just think, look, it's just used for treating aches and pains and inflammation. But the mention of an antipsychotic medication that sends us all into a state of cynicism and negativity. I will say one thing about those who are conscientious objectors to mental health medications. If someone was dehydrated after seven years in the desert, you would give them water. Take that as you will. You know, I, f I find it hilarious how, you know, the moment you tell someone that water is a poison, you know, it starts to shift a few people's perspectives, you know, drink seven liters of water and find out, you know, but in the end, it is a medicine at therapeutic doses as well. So what I want to do now is just kind of summarize what happens when we seek help from a doctor or a practitioner. What usually happens when we're feeling unwell is we see a doctor. We take their advice, we swallow a pill for a course of three to 10 days if it's an antibiotic or, you know, if it's like a, a steroid of some sort, it's probably, you know, like four to five days or so. And we swallow the pill and wait for our symptoms to disperse and hope for the best. You know, we trust that the doctor will give us the right advice whether it be a naturopath, whether it be a homeopath, whether it be, you know, any health practitioner that we, we go to, we expect that they know what they're talking about. Now, in our modern day, the same process is prescribed for our mental health. We feel unwell, we see a doctor, we follow their advice, we are told to take a pill, and we wait until the symptoms disperse. But it wasn't always like this. Aside from the clearly evidence-lacking preparations like dangerously toxic elixirs, you know, containing heavy metals like mercury and lithium um, and, and lethal doses of anesthetics like ketamine, trephination, which involved cutting out a section of the skull, bloodletting, which was a medieval technique of restoring the body of its balance by bleeding out the patient because it was thought that the patients had too much blood, and insulin coma asylums. I mean, that just speaks for itself. I think the name says it all. You know, the, the, the point of saying all of that was that the fact that for most of humanity, there wasn't a pill that you could so simply ingest for mental morbidities. You know, morbidities meaning like illnesses or ailments. There seemed little to do with mental sufferers other than place them in cells and tie them in chains and do one's best to forget they even existed. This soon would change in 1952. Um, a French chemist by the name of Paul Charpentier synthesized a drug known as then 4560RP, 
um, and now commonly known as a first-generation antipsychotic called chlorpromazine. When American soldiers in the Korean War were given it, they were able to walk into battlefields fearless, close to apathetic. In hospitals, patients who were given chlorpromazine uh, became sociable and ready to rejoin society as a functioning member. The first pill for treatment of mental illness was born, and plenty of money was injected into the research and discovery of new drugs that acted in similar ways to achieve the desired effect of mental stability. Though, with all of the research and development of drugs, you know, of these new drugs that could be used for a variety of mental illnesses, their mechanisms of actions weren't actually fully understood, and not really understood well enough even until today. However, scientists concluded that the chemical that's concerned in the mechanisms of these drugs was the well-known excitement and reward chemical, dopamine. New drugs flourished into the pharmaceutical market with names that, you know, me and, and even the most skilled pharmacists had trouble remembering, pronouncing and discerning between. Drugs that treat depressive symptoms called SSRIs or selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors were born into the market with names like fluoxetine, citalopram, paroxetine, escitalopram, geloxetine, riboxetine, whatever the particularities of each example, it's pretty evident that modern psychiatry ended up with operating with two essential instruments. Pills that could calm us down, like the chlorpromazine that I mentioned before, um, haloperidol, domperidone, risperidone, aripiprazole, uh, quetiapine, you know, drugs that reduce terror, paranoia, mania, um, disinhibition, insomnia, and aggression, and pills that could lift us up, you know, alleviating despair, um, trying to treat loss of meaning, um, you know, things like the fluoxetine, desvenlafaxine, escitalopram, citalopram, paroxetine, the SSRIs that I mentioned before. Now, for a second, <laughs> in the world of psychiatry, it seemed like our minds could be tamed with the dispersion of a pill in our stomachs. But these drugs were met with some serious side effects, some of which could not be tolerated by patients taking them. Now, for the past eight or so weeks, or no, I'm going to say nine weeks, ten weeks, um, I just finished off my uh, massive learning module in um, uh, neurology and mental health. And by no means am I a an expert on these things, but you know, we had several lectures explaining the side effects, the typical side effects of antipsychotics. Some of these things are, you know, um, excessive uh, salivation, which is called sialuria, um, hyperprolactinemia, which is, you know, having more prolactin or higher concentration of prolactin in the body. For men, this can cause the occurrence of something called gynecomastia, which is um, the formation of male breasts. It can lead to sexual dysfunction. It can lead to heart issues. Um, you know, it can cause QT prolongation in the heart. Um, it can cause dyslipidemia, cardiometabolic effects. It can cause, you know, 
metabolic syndromes, um, all of these different side effects which were intolerable by patients. And to be fair to psychiatry, though there are some debilitating side effects like the ones that I just mentioned, we were taught in a pharmacy workshop. We had a we had a workshop with patients who were physically living with some of the mental illnesses, um, such as schizophrenia, such as bipolar disorder, um, manic and major depressive disorders. Um, and they would say that the side effects of these medications were nothing compared to the first-hand unfathomable side effects of the mental illnesses. They would say that they would persist with the physical torture of these side effects in exchange for mental clarity and order in their minds. And that's precisely a digression that I want to take advantage of here in this podcast. All too often, the conscientious objectors in our society who are against medications or don't really have much of a grasp on mental illness or the pharmacotherapy behind it, um, they're quick to play the card of cynicism and skepticism when it comes to these psychotropic medicines. Now, look, it's it's completely it's in a, it's a, it's unethical for me to just conclude that, and it's unfair to just conclude that their skepticism comes from just misinformation and ill-education, because more often times than not, it actually comes from personal experience or the experience of a close relative or a friend. But I can't possibly fathom what some of these strong individuals have gone through and the experiences that have shaped their perception of psychotropic medicines. But what I can say is this, with the right medication, the symptoms that people who are living with schizophrenia experience can diminish. With the right medication, a person living with bipolar can effectively manage their symptoms of mania and depressive symptoms as well. With the right expert opinion, evidence-based recommendation, patient autonomy and information, a person who did not choose to live with a mental health condition and whose condition could not be prevented with all of the historical remedies of the past, whether it be complementary medicines, herbal medicines, homeopathic medicines, diets, nutritions, exercises, you name it, that person can live a life that's closer to normal. You know, all too often you find that people jump to the conclusions of we should focus on more of a preventative medicine approach. It's extremely hard to draw a line in healthcare of when we should start informing the public of how to prevent certain med you know, medical ailments. You know, most oftentimes the majority of medical conditions, sure, they might be environmentally, you know, um, they might be environmentally influenced, but most of them have a genetic influence as well, you know. And so, you know, a life that is exempt from perils of their erratic minds you know, is something that people who suffer from mental illnesses are willing to, you know, take medications if they need them. That is all. 
No one is saying that these medications have no side effects, rather quite the opposite. You know, billions of dollars is spent around the world on research to identify the risks of medications. Everything is a poison on this planet. You know, drink seven liters of water a day, like I said before, and you'll see its devastating effects. The dose makes the poison. Everything should be taken in moderation. Now here's the problem. I know exactly what you're thinking. You're probably thinking, ah, here we go again. I'm listening to some conservative, you know, student of health and we're just, you know, like, ah, here we go. He's just going to talk to us about how pills are the way of the future. No, 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 no. Aside from the intolerable side effects of some of these medications, these medications don't treat the cause but just rather the effects, the side effects of the illnesses. With all conditions, we need to address the biological, the psychological, and the social presence of the condition. Medications just target the biological. With the correct professional match for a patient, someone who they respect and trust, will give them evidence-based suggestions for their conditions, People living with mental morbidities can feel assured that their illness is not just a chemical imbalance, but actually a culmination of many factors that a pill cannot fix alone. And conversely, many factors that a psychologist alone cannot fix as well. So with that in mind, we might say that the role of pills is to hold back panic and sadness just long enough that we can start to identify why we might want to continue living. They aren't in themselves the cure, but they are at points the essential tools that can make therapy and a thorough, authentic healing process possible. They promise our minds the rest and the safety that they require to harness their own strengths. Think about them like a uh, the way I like to think about them, and many, um, especially Alan de Bottom, uh, said, said a very nice quote. He said, think about them like a thick pane of glass that separates a human from an enraged tiger. They give us time. They give us distance. We can live another day. We can choose not to think sadistic thoughts at every moment. And we can park the idea of mourning and ineptitude while we clean our bedrooms and feel capable. Only, you know, someone who, I see this all too often, you know, someone who hasn't endured vicious mental suffering would just casually dismiss these medication interventions as a plaster over a wound. They give us time. They give people living with these conditions time. You know, they give them valuable time where they think there is none. You know, there were times where we missed out on bits of reassurance and care when we were younger. We may have felt inadequate due to bullying and may have developed unhealthy mechanisms to cope with our past, you know, like lying or, or you know, anything that people develop to cope with, you know, their past. On top of this, the compounded effect of our difficult past and our complicated adult present adds more complexity that layers up and convinces ourselves that we're incapable and not well equipped to, to handle ourselves. 
It's like strapping an ankle time and time and again, whose ligaments are torn and muscles are compensating because of multiple repetitive injury to the same joint, you know, until more damage is destined to occur. Unfortunately, the only symptoms that the mind shows in comparison to a swollen ankle or a rolled ankle, you know, whose symptoms are pain and, and throbbing and distress and swelling and, and, and redness and all these types of obvious symptoms, the mind shows the tip of the iceberg whose depth is unimaginable. You know, you don't know when it all started. Our illness is trying to draw attention to our problems but it can only do so with small, subtle references. It throws up a course of vague symptoms. It knows how to declare that we're worried and sad, you feel it, but it can't tell us what about and why the same way that an ankle can. What I find really, really interesting is that, you know, that is the work of a patient investigation over months and years and probably in the company of an expert, whether it be a holistic care m medicine therapist or someone who is, you know, a, a healer of some sort or a psychologist or a psychiatrist even. The illness contains the cure, but it has to be teased out and its original um, I guess, workings interpreted by someone who understands and has the qualifications to do so. So something from the past is definitely crying out to be recognized and it won't leave us until we've given it its due. So with all of that in mind, it might feel like a death sentence. And I hope that this whole podcast has showed you the, the multiple, you know, um, the facets of, of all of what mental health develops and, the, and the, the ways that we treat mental health. You know, it might seem like a death sentence, but underneath the crisis, time and time and again, it's been proven that it is an opportunity to restart our lives and gain more clarity and a more realistic footing over what to expect. You know, there is an art to being ill. I can... I can comment for an hour longer exactly that. You know, I can talk about my personal experience with any of the morbidities that I've experienced over my life and how they've changed me as an individual, but in the time, they felt like a death sentence. You know, there's an art to being ill and to have the courage to listen to what our pain is trying to tell us and not ignore it in the interest of our egos is the real cherry to the pudding. You know, that is the, the cream of the crop. That's the lesson. To listen to what our pain is trying to tell us and not ignore it. Hey guys, thank you so much for listening to my podcast. Um, I really hope that you enjoyed it um, as much as I enjoyed making it. Um, if you did enjoy this podcast, please feel free to let me know. I love starting conversations with people who um, listen to my podcast. After all, you know, I'm speaking into a mic. Um, 
you know, and, and not really talking to anyone. So it really does help when you do, uh, I guess, answer back and um, have that flow on conversation effect that a podcast usually does elicit. Um, if you did enjoy it and you'd like your friends to listen to it, um, please feel free to share this podcast. Um, although I do advise for you to just caution the podcast with the fact that it may, um, uh, I guess, spark a few notes because it is a very sensitive topic. Um, but without further ado, um, I do hope that you enjoyed this podcast and I hope you have a beautiful day. Thank you. See ya.